Hello everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past walking tours based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 3, Prince Edward Island. There is something about islands that seems to attract stories of ghosts and the supernatural. Islands can be quite isolated places and are often subject to the great forces of nature such as the pounding of the waves or the might of an ocean storm. Bad things can happen on islands just as much as anywhere in the world, but if there is no help to be found nearby, then it is likely that no help will be found at all. Perhaps with Prince Edward Island, the long history combined with the forceful nature of the surrounding ocean has yielded a rich archive of folklore. Perhaps it is all the salt water on every side that holds in energy, refusing to let the ghosts of the past die off and disappear. Perhaps the island itself is just so delightful and friendly that heaven itself seems like a distant runner-up for favorable places to spend the afterlife. Whatever the reason... Prince Edward Island, while small, can match pound for pound any other province when it comes to ghosts, as you'll find is the case with the stories on this episode. The first of these stories has such a weight to it that it's even been featured on national postage stamps, and is so widely known that the folks who work there still get calls about it today, even though the incident took place over 20 years before PEI became a province of Canada. Let's land ourselves in the province's capital, Charlottetown, and get to bed. We've got quite the journey ahead of us. Don't bother setting a wake-up alarm, either. We've got something else to bring us to our senses bright and early in the morning. October 7th, 1853, a loud and deep clang awoke many citizens of Charlottetown from their sleep. A large bell had been rung, and the sound was still echoing down the streets when the bell was struck again. 
Captain Cross, who lived in Charlottetown, jumped from his bed, threw on a jacket, and walked outside. His first path took him down to the wharf, for a bell that early in the morning could only signal the arrival of a ship. However, he found himself standing on the wooden planks staring back at a motionless harbor. No ships were pulling in, and none could be seen over the dark and stormy horizon. Cross shivered a little as the wind whipped along the wharf and through his thin jacket. He was about to head back home when a third clang sounded from somewhere in town. Captain Cross followed the sound over to the Kirk of St. James. Just as he stepped onto the property, another clang rang out. There in the doorway of the bell tower he saw three women dressed in white. Before he could approach them to inquire about the ringing, the doors closed in front of them and another clang sounded from the tower. Cross saw movement up in the belfry window and was about to investigate when he heard a greeting shouted at him from behind. He turned around and saw the Kirk's sexton and its minister walking briskly up toward him. Cross looked back at the belfry window and noticed the figures were gone from it. Together, the three men stepped up to the bell tower door. Cross gave a big pull, but it wouldn't budge. The tower, the sexton informed him, was obviously locked when not in use, and he produced a key and inserted it into the door. They climbed to the top of the tower and found it completely empty, although the large bell was still vibrating, having clearly been struck within the past minute. Baffled, the captain, the sexton, and the minister descended the staircase and relocked the door. The bells remained silent as usual after that, and Captain Cross said nothing about the strange apparition of the three women. Later during the day, the steamer, Fairy Queen, departed Charlottetown for Pictou, Nova Scotia. It was a boat in deplorable condition, the likes of which most owners would refuse to have sail. Despite its terrible state and the storm clouds to the south, the Fairy Queen exited the harbor right on schedule. About three-quarters of the way to Pictou, the steamer hit rough waters. Whereas a normal ship would have weathered the storm perfectly, the Fairy Queen split apart, tossing its travelers into the ocean. Before it broke entirely, the captain and crew abandoned ship via the lifeboats, leaving all passengers on board to fend for themselves. Most of the passengers did survive by clinging to wreckage which drifted to shore, but seven of these people never made it back. They drowned in the raging waters. The connection between the shipwreck and the mysterious bell ringing earlier that day? Three of the seven passengers that died were parishioners of the Kirk of St. James. They also happened to be three women, all dressed in white. You will find the Kirk of St. James if you travel to Charlottetown, but not the same one that stood in 1853, although this newer one still receives phone calls and inquiries about the old story. The tale is quite a popular one, even in recent months, as the YouTube channel Supergent put out a short but wonderful dramatization of the story. The old Kirk was moved a little to the north on the property in 1877 to make room for the new cathedral, the one that still exists today. If you're wondering what happened to the old one, it was dismantled, and in 1895 the narthex was detached and incorporated into a house on Churchill Street, which is indeed still standing. 
The new cathedral is certainly very lovely, and provides weekly services throughout the year. If you're in town and are keen on checking it out, you can find service times on their website. If you're looking for detailed information, though, just give them a ring. to Charlottetown, of course, but the next leg of our journey takes us out to the western shores of PEI for two stories right on the water. John awoke with a start. His wife Mary was shaking him, telling him to snap out of it. He had been dreaming, she informed him, and whatever he was dreaming about had caused him to kick and stir in his sleep, greatly disturbing her rest. She was annoyed, but John didn't notice. He was too busy rambling on about what he had seen in his dream. Slow down, his wife instructed. She lit a lamp, and they sat up in bed. John took a deep breath and began his story anew. There was a big, black pirate ship that was coming from the north. John could see it from his vantage point of, well, he wasn't quite sure. He was following it along from shore, but he wasn't running or walking or, well, moving at all. He was just there. The ship, he somehow knew, was looking for a safe place to land. Bluffs gave way to beaches and coves, and he heard a man on board shout that a good spot had been found. He also caught wind of the words, Captain Kidd. The black ship dropped anchor in a long, crescent-shaped cove, and big, ugly men rowed to shore with amazing speed. They hauled a chest, a treasure chest most likely, onto the sand and hurried it up to a row of trees. They seemed to be afraid of being chased by someone, and so moved very quickly. A hole was dug in no time flat, and the chest hurled in and covered up. The largest man... The captain, perhaps, cut three gashes into the nearest tree, while the others grabbed hold of the youngest man among them. He must not have yet turned twenty. They tied him to the tree with marks on it, and the captain roared that the boy will watch over the chest for eternity. They all left him there, squirming and calling out for them to come back. John had watched in horror as time seemed to speed up, the boy becoming eaten alive by mosquitoes, his skin rotting and falling off his dead body, and that's when Mary had woken him up. Mary succeeded in calming him down, but John couldn't get back to sleep. Every time he closed his eyes, he would see the boy lashed to the tree and calling out for help. The next day, at work cutting logs, John told everyone who would listen about his dream. It seemed that the villagers encouraged him, saying that they had heard tell of ordinary folk finding buried treasure on PEI in the years past. Perhaps this dream had more to it than John initially considered. That night, after John had crawled into bed, he had a repeat of the dream and awoke in a sweat to the voice of the boy begging for the captain to return and save him. After a third straight night, with the same dream, 
John decided it was time for action. He could vividly picture the cove in his mind, so he and some friends hired a boat and sailed along the north shore and down the west side of Prince Edward Island, looking for the location from his dream. As they descended along the west cape, John cried out. They had found it, just south of McWilliam's Cove. They rowed ashore and sprung onto the beach. John was almost in a state of shock. This was exactly the place from his dreams. He ran up to the tree line, to the spot where he was sure the boy had been tied, but saw no marks, no gashes in the bark to identify the burial site. He was at a loss as to where to go next. Perhaps it really had been just a dream and nothing more. That's when one of his companions called out. John looked where his friend was pointing, at the tree next to John, but a few feet up. There, much higher in the bark, were the three gashes. Of course, the tree had grown since the treasure was buried. They knew now what they had to do. They rowed back to where their boat was anchored, and waited until sunset, where they rowed back to shore with shovels. The mist rolled in as darkness quickly enveloped them. Once it was properly nighttime, they began digging in absolute silence. It was the most eerie thing John had ever experienced, just the sounds of shovels and sand and the waves nearby. Finally, there was a dull clunk as one of the shovel blades hit wood. The chest had been found. We've got her, boys, one of them shouted. John and the others panicked. They weren't supposed to speak yet. Sand began to slide into the hole so fast they were almost trapped. Diving out of the pit onto the beach, they could hear anchor chains being hoisted from the cove. John and his partners ran out to the water's edge, thinking it was their ship, but instead, in the mist, they could make out a black ship sailing away. You've guarded it well, boy, rang out a husky, coarse voice that echoed out over the waters. You've guarded it well. If the West Point Lighthouse is haunted, and it's very likely that it is, then one can assume with great certainty that it is haunted by the spirits of William MacDonald and or Benjamin MacIsaac. Between its opening in 1867 and the day when it became automated in 1963, there were only two lighthouse keepers, MacDonald for a little over 50 years, then MacIsaac for the rest. In fact, one might lean toward McDonald's being the ghost inside, as he was so devoted to his position that he never missed a day of work in all the years that he was there. In the 1980s, renovations started to transform the lighthouse into an inn with a restaurant and museum. If you know anything about haunted places, you'll know that changes, such as renovations, will tend to stir up the energies inside them, making any kind of spirits more active. I'm not talking about some kind of Beetlejuice effect here, but the idea does tend to hold true, at least for many places here in Victoria. The West Point Lighthouse was not an exception to this theory. 
Just ask the volunteers who worked on it. One volunteer was preparing to lock up as she was the last person out of the lighthouse for the day. She climbed the 72-step staircase to the very top to check on the rotating beacon, then climbed all the way back down, turning off every light as she went. With the whole place dark, she exited, turned the key, and hopped into her car. As she was about to start her vehicle, she noticed that there was a light on inside the tower of the lighthouse. That was strange. She could have sworn she had turned them all off. Oh well, she must have missed one. She got out of her car and re-entered the lighthouse, ascending the tower and turning off that final light. Back out to her car she went. As she turned the key in the ignition, once more she looked up and once more she set eyes upon an illuminated window in the tower. She knew that there were stories of this place being haunted, and she figured it was probably best to just leave the light on, rather than running the chance of encountering a spirit. If the ghost wanted the light on, then fine, the ghost could have the light on. She pulled away and left the property. A few months later, a group of workers were at the lighthouse to rewire the electricity. They all knew the place well, and were poring over maps to every room. They had to cut off all power to the building, meaning that they were often working by flashlight inside, although the actual beacon of the lighthouse stayed on as it was powered by a separate source. At the end of the day, they began driving away from the lighthouse. Down the road, they were confronted by a local fellow in quite a nervous state. He reported that his neighbor was rather distraught, and that this local feared his neighbor might head toward the lighthouse with the intention of jumping off the top. The workers immediately sped back to the lighthouse, hoping to ensure the place was secured and prevent the distraught man from entering in to jump. When they arrived at the building, there was a light on inside, and the workers feared they were too late. They rushed up to the door and found it locked from the outside, just as they had left it. There were no other ways in either, so the workers were somewhat confused. The local pulled into the parking lot behind them to inform them that his neighbor was now safe at home. The workers were glad of this, and went inside the lighthouse just to make sure all was well. The light was indeed on, but nobody was there, so they shut it off and made for the exit to lock up. That's when they realized something. While they had cut power to the lighthouse for their work, they had never reconnected the electricity. How had that light been on? Cautiously, they returned to the previously lit room and flipped the switch. The room remained bathed in darkness. The power was indeed off. One would think that the ghost of a man who had worked there for over fifty years would not need light to make his way around the place he knew so well. But if these stories are to be believed, then I guess that the deceased old keeper did indeed need little beacons of his own to navigate the darkness. The next three stories have something in common. They're all very old tales. While some of the dates aren't certain, I would wager that you could travel back to the 1700s and still find these stories to be familiar with the locals. Just west of Charlottetown on the Trans-Canada Highway is the town of Cornwall. 
There, you'll find a bridge spanning Kellos Hollow, which is the site of a very peculiar legend from the early days of European settlement. Jack Conaway was one of three brothers that lived in the area, and one night he had departed the Noah's Ark, the local pub, and set out for home. To get there, he and his horse made for the bridge over Kellos Hollow, but as they got close, his horse slowed down, frightened by something. Jack leaned forward and gave his horse a pat, whispering calmly, Easy there, old girl. There is nothing to be afraid of. Easy does it. Urged onward, the horse began crossing the bridge, still upset, but by what, Jack couldn't imagine. They were but halfway across when a piercing, horrible scream filled the air around them. Utterly spooked, the horse reared up and bolted forward, pitching poor Jack from its back and head first onto the bridge rail. The fierce blow was a fatal one, and Jack died then and there on Kello's Hollow. Several months later, Brother Michael Conaway approached the very same bridge, he too on horseback and also at night. His horse came to a full stop, eyes alert and ears twitching. The old pine tree by the bridge was alight with balls of all sizes and colors. Michael was stunned and could not seem to take his eyes away from the spectacle. He watched as the tree seemed to be hit by something large and with such force that all the lights fell to the ground and vanished. Silence followed as the air around Michael became very uneasy. In the stillness of the night, he began to hear the clip-clopping of horse hooves coming up from behind very slowly. Then, just a little louder, a voice. Easy there, old girl. There's nothing to be afraid of. Michael instantly recognized the voice as his brother's and was about to call out when the bridge became filled with about twenty figures, all in white and all swirling around them. Their leader seemed to be Jack on horseback and driving them forward, completely unaware of Michael and his horse in their midst. Michael watched as the figures swarmed into the old pine tree and disappeared, leaving him alone in the darkness. He wasted no time in galloping out of there. While the old pine tree has long been removed, the story remains a favorite tale of Cornwall residents and a very popular one across all of Prince Edward Island. It's been reported many times over the centuries. In fact, several rescue missions have been sent out of Charlottetown with the hope of saving those on board. Standing on the south shores of Prince Edward Island gives you the best chance of seeing it for yourself, the famous phantom ship of the Northumberland Strait. The origin of the story takes place at some point in the mid-1700s. A ship loaded with European immigrants passed into the strait but caught fire. 
The vessel burned quickly and sank, claiming the lives of all who were on board. The stories of encounters with the phantom ship were passed down orally for about a hundred years, until 1880, when the first written account appears. There was a tugboat departing Picto, Nova Scotia, and the crew spotted a large ship in the distance, completely ablaze. It had three masts, with the sails set, and the ship itself was moving very quickly in an easterly direction. The tugboat made a beeline for the fiery ship, but the closer they got, the more it seemed to fade away, until finally they were at the spot where they figured they had seen it floating. Nothing was there. No wreckage. No lifeboats. No smoke. No sign that any ship had sunk. Sightings haven't been limited to the 19th century either. Maritimers have seen it quite recently as well. In the 1970s, the call rang out through the Charlottetown Harbor for the RCMP. A ship had been spotted burning in the distance, and the RCMP set out in that direction. They, too, found nothing. Perhaps the most unique account comes from not too long ago. A speedboat was out on the waters of the Northumberland Strait, and the people on board saw the phantom ship not too far off, moving away from them. The boaters knew exactly what this was and turned their craft toward it. The phantom ship was moving quickly, but they wagered their boat was faster, and they motored off in its direction. They were indeed closing the distance very rapidly and kept pushing until they were right there with the burning ship. The air around was cool, no heat from the nearby flames, and while they could make out the blaze in great detail, no sounds could be heard. Before they knew what was happening, their boat passed straight through the hull of the phantom ship and out the other side. Turning around, the boaters discovered that the whole scene had vanished, and they were left alone bobbing on the waves, wondering what exactly they had just seen. If you love camping, and you find yourself on the eastern shores of Prince Edward Island, you might very well end up at Brudnell River Provincial Park Campground. There you are, setting up your tent and thinking about getting a start on dinner, when two figures rush past your sight, one large and one small, and run off through the trees. 
You're at a campground, so there are bound to be people running around, so you don't think much of it, even when it happens again as you're sitting by the fire at night. You stay up late by the fireside until well past midnight, and then douse the fire. It's at this moment that you start to feel a little strange. You look behind you to the side of your campsite, and there are the two figures again, standing and watching you, illuminated in the darkness of the night. Before you can speak, they turn and run away in the same direction as before. This experience is nothing new. In the early days of Scottish settlement, a young man was in the area on a hunting trip. He saw two human figures dashing through the trees ahead of him. Of course, at the time, there was no campground nearby. In fact, to the hunter's knowledge, nothing was nearby. He called out and ran after them. He could still catch glimpses of them up ahead, and they led him to the water's edge. He saw them descend to the beach and then sprint across the water to Brydnell Island. It was impossible to follow them now, so the hunter stood on the beach and watched as the two figures, a woman and a girl, turned around and motioned for him to follow them, and they disappeared into the island trees. Well, the hunter returned home and began to tell the villagers what he had seen, he was met at first by laughter and ridicule, but then person by person neighbors came forth to claim they had experienced very similar events lately. It was decided that two of the villagers were to wait until the tide was out, then cross over to Brudnell Island via the sandbar. Once there, they lumbered through the trees until they discovered a small clearing where two bodies lay. They were the bodies of a local woman and her daughter who had gone missing months earlier. The corpses had been viciously mutilated, limbs torn off and skin ripped open, likely the work of a bear. What was left of them had been decomposing for months. It was a horrid sight. The bodies were covered up, brought back to town, and buried properly. The locals figured that the spirits of the woman and daughter would be able to rest peacefully now that their earthly remains had been located. The locals were clearly mistaken. Not long afterwards, a villager on a walk through the forest near Brodnell Island saw the two figures running through the trees ahead of him. Instead of giving chase, the villager hurried off in the opposite direction. The mainland around that area is now largely home to a provincial park including a campground. On the park map, everything is laid out very clearly, including Brodnell Island. It's quite easy to access at any time of the day now, as the sandbar was filled in and is now a causeway linking the park to the island. The island, however, is only home to one thing these days, a cemetery. If the spirits of the woman and the girl are seen and followed, the curious investigator will not be led to the ghost's bodies as the hunter had been all those years ago. The follower will be led to bodies of dozens of others, all buried deep within the island's soil and hidden from view. Last episode, I alluded to a rather striking story involving a pitchfork and a graveyard. Every so often in my researching, I come across a story which I cannot help but immediately love. There are some tales that are plain and simple fascinating. This has definitely been one of them. Without going too deep into the details just yet, I'd like to pause for a short moment for some episode housekeeping. First, 
I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories that you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published by Touchwood Editions in 2018, which you can find on Amazon or through Chapters Indigo. This is one of the newest books in Barbara's vast archives, and I highly recommend grabbing it the moment you find it in a store. Ghost Stories of the Maritimes by Vernon Oikel, published by Lone Pine Publishing in 2001, available online through Amazon and Chapters Indigo. Ghost Stories and Legends of Prince Edward Island by Julie Watson, published by Dunder and Press in 2018, which you can find online at Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and Dunder's company website, as well as in person in many stores in the Maritimes. Legends of Prince Edward Island by Frank MacArthur, published by Acorn Press, most recently in May of 2019, so only a few months ago. You can find the book online at Amazon, abebooks.com, and on acornpresscanada.com. And if you're in the Maritimes and it's not in a store near you, I'm sure it will be soon. Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published by Lone Pine Publishing in 2001, and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and now on Apple Podcasts as well. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in a review, consider writing, I would dig for treasure on Prince Edward Island, but nothing I find could compare with the treasure that is this podcast. Or something like that. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Also, a huge thank you to Tara for her help in researching this episode. It can be quite tricky to dig deep into the history of other provinces when I'm working from Victoria, BC, and so I am very grateful to have a friend with some connections in PEI. Our next episode will be released on Thursday, July 11th, and will feature New Brunswick. The forests and lumber camps of NB can be quite unassuming to passers-by, but another contact on the inside who used to live there has a rather chilling tale from an old house, and I do not use the word chilling lightly. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2.00pm. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30pm for each night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street, outside the Visitor's Information Centre. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. Come say hello!
The phrase, stick a fork in it, probably refers to sticking an actual fork in a piece of meat to see if it has finished cooking. Nowadays, it's used to pronounce something or someone to be finished. Before you stick a fork in this episode, there's one more fork to stick. By the way, if you're tired of hearing the word fork, you're out of luck. For our last story, we're heading to the graveyard. Peter McIntyre departed Scotland and arrived in Prince Edward Island in 1773, settling in the village of Trachety, northeast of Charlottetown. He was a boastful man, which perhaps contributed to him never marrying, always living by himself on a little farm raising livestock. In Trachety, though, there weren't many options for company, so Peter McIntyre, while by no means anyone's favorite companion, was always welcomed at the local store to sit and chat. It was a cold evening in late October, colder than most. A small group of men were huddled around the tiny stove in the Trachety store, trying to keep warm and passing the time by telling tales. The shop's door burst open with a stream of cold wind, and in stepped McIntyre. The men around the stove scooched over to allow Peter to squeeze in with them and sit down. As the fire crackled in the stove, he took off his damp gloves and hung them on the grate. He gave a nod and a grunt of appreciation, and the men continued their stories. The topic of the conversation turned from the size of fish they had caught to plans for next summer's crops, and eventually to the cold air outside. One of the logs in the fire snapped, causing one of the men, Ben Peters, to jump a little. The others laughed, teasing him, but Peters insisted he had been on edge for the past few days, ever since he had been hunting in nearby Scotchford, and happened upon the old French burial site in the woods. There, in the middle of the gravestones, had been a blazing ball of light, illuminating the entire clearing. Peters, scared, had run out of there as fast as his legs would carry him. Well, Peter McIntyre roared with laughter. Had Ben Peters never seen the sun before? It wasn't the sun, Peters protested. Well, it couldn't have been anything else, according to McIntyre. What about ghosts? At that, McIntyre scoffed. There are no such things as ghosts, and if there were, there would be worse things to be afraid of, like wild animals. Peter McIntyre had never heard tell of a ghost causing anybody harm before. To prove his point, he claimed he would quite easily walk through the cemetery alone, even at the dead of night. Well, the other men were a little offended by Peter's bold claims and rude dismissal of their friend's experience. They decided to test just how far Peter McIntyre's confidence would go. They made him a deal. A pound of tobacco would be his, providing he walked to the graveyard alone that night and plant a pitchfork in the middle of it to prove he had been there. McIntyre happily accepted, and at midnight each man departed the store for home, save for Peter. He threw on his black rain jacket picked up a pitchfork leaning against the store, and marched off for Scotchford. The following morning, the men from the store met up outside Peter McIntyre's farm. They called out to him, but received no response except the bleating of sheep. They pushed past the gate, and walked up to his shack and peered inside. There was no one home. In fact, it appeared as if no one had been there at all last night. No candles were set out on the table, no breakfast had been made, and the livestock hadn't been fed. This was odd, 
Peter had apparently not returned from the burial ground. To get to the old French graveyard, which was but a clearing in the forest, one had to traverse a narrow footpath through the trees. The men marched in single file, peering through the bushes for any danger as they went. Finally, the forest opened up and spat them into a small clearing with headstones sticking up sporadically throughout it. There, dead center of the burial ground, was a pitchfork, driven into the earth and sticking up into the air. At the base of it, however, was something strange. A huddled black mass, quite large. They called out, but their voices rang in the air unanswered. Gathering close to the pitchfork, they rolled the man over, for that's what the black mass was. The black rain jacket gave way to Peter McIntyre's face. It bore an expression of utmost horror, a convulsion of terror that was dreadful to look upon. McIntyre had been frightened to death, but by whom, or what, they had no clue. The only evidence that something else had been with him during his last moments was the pitchfork, for although it was sticking out of the earth just as the deal had specified, it was driven clean through Peter McIntyre's jacket, pinning his corpse to the ground. Thank you.